0: Greetings. In a few moments, you'll be hearing a timeless sermon preached by Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones from First Corinthians chapter two, verse two. For I determined to not know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now I want to be clear: um, this sermon is the same passage as the pamphlet that I created a Christian treasure on uh, with the same title, Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. You can get the pamphlet from Banner of Truth. The sermon from the pamphlet was uh, preached to recognize the 50th year of the doctor um, when he became uh, pastor at uh, Bethlehem Forward Movement Church in Abervon Wells. And so in 1927, and he would go back in 1977 and preach this most amazing message. I said, uh, there's probably, what, 8 billion people in this world, and this is the sermon that I would want all 8 billion people to read and to consider. It's a, it's a timeless message. It, it's um, a message that um, you, you read it. It's, it is as if the doctor is, is speaking to us this very day most essential for sure. Now, this particular sermon, though, that that, uh, comes from the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust site um, is on the same passage, but but preached at a different time. So it's not the exact same message, but the thrust of the message is the same. The sense of urgency, uh, the way the doctor speaks about the confusion and the challenges that we're facing today, and what are we to do about it all? It's very clear that something has gone awry. And as someone who's listened to the doctor, uh, preach, uh, many times, um, never, never obviously in person, but just through, um, through the Joan Lloyd-Jones Trust site, um, I've come to recognize his voice and I'm pretty certain, um, That the doctor, that this particular sermon is also preached in the 1970s. I would think that, um, I would have to say it's probably like 1975 or later. Because you can hear um, in the doctor's voice his age. He's aging, he's getting older. And you can hear it in his voice. So, what I'm suggesting to you, it is likely that this sermon, same passage, same thrust of the message, um, but a different sermon, not, not exactly the same as the one in the pamphlet, is likely to have been preached um, around the same time and within a few years of the doctor going home to glory on March 1st, 1981. And there's a, there's a, a thread. Um, one of the Christian treasures was an interview that the doctor gave, I think, about a year before his death, if I remember correctly. In Christianity today, I encourage you to consider that as well. But the doctor is making the same um, point. Um, he he provides the same warning and the same solution to this world to all souls. And and I think that's really a good a good reminder for us. It's good to listen to those that are about to go home to glory at the end of their ministry. There's every word counts, you know. And, um, uh, and we'd be wise to listen. There's, um, if you look up at the screen, there's a, 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 picture of the doctor. Um, it's an actual photo. I'm, I'm sure there were many made, you know, from the same negative negative. and it was framed and it was, it was, um, given to a, probably a, a, a friend of the doctor. I don't know the inscription on the back. I don't know if it's by Beth Ann or Elizabeth or Ann, um, the doctor's, uh, children, but, um, but I, but I share that photo of the doctor again, because, um, he's aging, you know, he's, he's getting older. Um, and we would be wise to listen, just like, um, listening to, you know, or reading Apostle Paul's last epistles to Timothy or, or John's epistle or Peter's epistles, you know, you get a sense of urgency that says, hey, listen, this I'm not going to be with you very much longer, and I want you to listen very closely. that That's how I would approach this particular sermon. So again, it's a classic, it's timeless, as, as important as it was when it was likely preached in the 1970s, um, it's even more so today in the year 2023, and it will continue to remain so. In in conclusion, what I will say is when the doctor began his ministry in 1927, Jesus Christ and him crucified, um, he, he famously said he didn't know if he could preach, but he knew what ought to be preached. And he had a theory, the way I could articulate it, is if he could, with God's help, preach like Apostle Paul, would God then bless the ministry? So that was his aim. Let me let me preach like Apostle Paul. Let me see if I can help some souls, and let's see if God bless the ministry. And that was the doctor's theory, because even back in nineteen twenty-seven, the church had already become liberal, misguided, um, priorities in the wrong order, and such. And um, and indeed the Lord did help the doctor and he preached simplicity with simplicity and great authority and great power um, He had a very Christ honoring ministry and the doctor was a sincere faithful minister. He was a real man, a real Christian man and he was faithful in his private life and he was faithful in his public life and I think that's what was so key to his ministry in other words, just a word of encouragement to you pastors, what you do in private will determine, I believe, um, very much so about how the Lord will use you publicly. So how you prepare yourself, your prayer time, your study time, your, your own personal sanctification, being more devoted to God and holy and uh, uh, preparing yourself, you have a very important job as a minister, the most important job, to be a flaming minister, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. No, no matter whatever your personal weaknesses are, you know, your shortcomings, you know, whatever it might be, um, just remember you're an ambassador and you're proclaiming Jesus Christ, not yourself. So it's not about your personal performance, but it's about your ability to speak God's word simply with authority and power. That's my encouragement to you, ministers. Well, enough said. I hope that you're blessed by this uh, tremendous message by the doctor. Listen carefully and consider and act. Um, um, grace upon grace be with you.
1: which we read at the beginning. The second chapter in Paul's 1st Epistle to the Corinthians. 1st Epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We meet together on a Sunday evening like this in a world that is Great trouble, in great confusion. You can't hear a news bulletin, you can't read a paper without reading of some new catastrophe, some new tragedy, some new problem. The world is in a terrible plight. Everybody is agreed about that. But what everybody is not agreed about is as to the question of what exactly is the business or the duty, if you like, of the Christian church at such a time, and what is the duty of every individual Christian. There is great confusion concerning this, concerning this question of uh, uh, what is exactly the task of the church. There's great discussion about this. People argue about this, even people who never attend a place of worship. They tend to ask the question at times, what's the Christian church doing? How do you justify you are carrying on and perpetuating and spending money on your buildings and your organizations? What is the business and the task of the church? Uh, and in the same way, we can put the question by putting it like this. What is the great message that the world needs at this moment? It's having many messages spoken to it. This is the age of propaganda. Never have there been so many words addressed to individuals and to society and to the whole world. But what is the message that the world really needs at this present time, or let's put it quite personally and individually? What do you need? What do I need? What is it that every individual in the world needs at this present moment? Now these are the questions you see that are raised by the great apostle in this uh, particular chapter that we are looking at together and especially in terms of this second verse. It's interesting to observe the way in which the apostle ever came to write these words and indeed this chapter and the second half of the first chapter And the third and the fourth chapters, he wrote them because a situation had arisen in the church at Corinth which necessitated his writing in this way. Uh, It was Paul who first took the gospel to Corinth. It was under his ministry that a number of people had been converted and he'd formed them and established them uh, into a church. And for a while, it had been a very remarkable church, great in gifts and in many other respects. But by now, there was great trouble in the church. It was a divided church, a confused church, a very unhappy church, guilty of what he later calls schism. And what had caused this was that uh, people had become somewhat confused as to the nature of the gospel this thing he refers to as wisdom of men or the wisdom of the world which we call philosophy. He has said uh, in the 17th verse of the first chapter, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Well, it was, you see, this very confusion uh, that uh, In the church at Corinth that led the apostle uh, to write in this manner and to remind these people uh, of what the gospel really is, uh, what the message of the gospel is, and in other words, what the function of the Christian church is as she stands face to face uh, with a world that is in great trouble. Now, as I'm going to show you, the world was much the same then as it is now. And here we are told by this great preacher, this great apostle, the greatest evangelist and founder of churches that the world has ever known. We are told by no less an authority what the answer is uh, to these various questions. And I suggest to you that nothing is more urgent or more important for us, every one of us as individuals tonight, and especially those who are members of the church, that we may know exactly what the Christian message truly is. Now then, let's see what the apostle says. Well the first thing he tells us is, I determined not to know anything among him, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He arrived at a decision. This was something quite deliberate that he determined to do. Now there are those who would have us believe that uh, the Apostle arrived at this decision as the result of an experience he'd had in the great city of Athens, which he had visited, as you will recall, from the history of the book of the Acts of the Apostles before he went to Corinth. And in Athens... He had quoted some Greek poets, and so there are those who have said that the apostle having quoted Greek uh, poets in Athens, and having had his sermon interrupted, and having been uh, more or less a failure in Athens, that on the way from Athens to Corinth, he decided, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to display my knowledge of Greek poetry or anything else. But I I feel that that's quite a a false way of explaining these words. It seems to me rather that the position is this. The apostle, he knew before he ever went to Athens, the attitude of the world to this gospel. He has said in the previous uh, chapter uh, that uh, the Jews require a sign and the Greeks uh, seek after wisdom. He always knew this, he didn't have to learn that in Athens, he knew it from the beginning. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. And what he's telling us here is this. That though he knew that the Jews stumbled at this message of his, and though the Greeks regarded it as utter folly and foolishness, something beneath contempt in their estimate, he nevertheless deliberately decided that he would preach this same message and nothing else. That's the meaning of this statement. Now the apostle could have done many other things. He was a very learned man, a very erudite man, after all, this was the man who had sat at the feet of Gamaliel and who is entitled to say, as he does say in Philippians 3, that as regards his knowledge of the law, well, he was afraid of no competitor. He was a brilliant man. His epistles prove this. A man of tremendous mental ability, a great logician. And he had knowledge and he could have preached on many themes. But he tells us that he deliberately decided not to do so, though he knew the attitude of the people to whom he was going to preach. And of course, he elaborates this later on in the third chapter. He uses an expression like this, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be made wise. And later on he uses this expression. He says that he has become a fool for Christ's sake. This was a deliberate decision, a determination on his part. He has decided that in the eyes of the wise and the learned, the Greeks and the Jews, he's going to be a fool. That is what they said about him. Even some of the members of the church at Corinth were now tending to say this about him. They said, after all, his presence was weak and his speech was contemptible. They were tending to regard him as a fool. And you remember when he was in Athens, those Epicureans and Stoics said, what will this babbler say? Well, now the apostle says, I determined to become a fool. I have become a fool for Christ's sake. So I'm emphasizing this, that this was a very deliberate determination on the part of the Apostle. And all this idea that uh, people were primitive in those times and hadn't the learning and the knowledge that we have today is just, of course, nonsense, because this is one of the great minds of all the centuries. I remember during the last war I read a notice in a paper that the British Academy, a very learned, non-Christian society, the British Academy, a secular society, uh, decided to inaugurate a series of lectures on the theme, The Great Minds of the Ages, and I was interested to read the prospectus and to see who were the great minds of the centuries in their estimate, the secular society, and of course he was there, the apostle Paul. You can't understand civilization, you can't understand the great history of the world without knowing something about this man and his writings and his teachings. Yet here he is telling us that he deliberately decided not to know anything among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my suggestion to you tonight my friends is this, that until the church comes back to this same decision. She's going to avail nothing. And to me, the tragedy of the hour is that the church is almost doing the exact opposite of what is said here by the great apostle. Now, the motives I know are good. People are out to win people, and they're resorting to various messages and means and methods because they think this is what's going to appeal. But it isn't succeeding, is it? And I see no hope until we return to the method and the manner and the message of the great apostle and arrive at this great decision, this determination of his. This is our mandate. This is what we are here to proclaim. We are to be fools for Christ's sake as the apostle was. But let's put it like this to you. Why did the apostle decide not to preach anything else? That's the interesting thing, isn't it? He decides, but why? As I've already reminded you, the argument is that if we are to win the modern man, well then we must talk about the things in which he's interested. They say the modern man, he doesn't know the language of the Bible. That's why we're getting a new translation almost every week. This is the argument, isn't it? And they say it's no use preaching that old gospel to people. They're not interested. The terminology is gone. You must sit down by their sides and talk to them about the things they really are interested in, and then you have a chance of winning them. I remember a great ecclesiastic preaching once, I heard him myself, the sermon was broadcast on the wireless. And this man said quite deliberately that if you wanted to turn the people of North Africa he was dealing with in particular, if you wanted to turn them into Christians, well, it was no use, he said, sending men out with this old gospel so-called. The way to win them, he said, is to go out and live amongst them, take part in their local politics, in their general politics, mix with them, and then he said, you have some hope that perhaps their grandchildren will be able to have some Christian influence and effect upon such nations and peoples. Now, this has been the popular idea, and it's the exact opposite, you see, of what the apostle teaches us here. Now, what were the things that Paul could have preached about? What were the things that those Greeks in Corinth were interested in? Well, we know exactly. There were Jews amongst them. He refers to them. And they were interested in the law, the Jewish law. And they would have liked him to have preached about the law and expounded the law and its meaning. There were many such people, as you know, in the early early days of the Christian church. It started amongst the Jews. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and others used to go and listen. they were interested in the law and such people crept into the churches and they always wanted preachers to preach about the law. But others and the more purely Greek people, not the Hellenized Jews but the Greeks as such, they of course were tremendously interested in philosophy. Now everybody knows that the Greeks, uh, the ancient Greeks, were perhaps the most intelligent nation that the world has ever known. And it was Greece that produced the greatest succession of philosophers that the world has ever known. We still know their names, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. They are the great masters, and people are still studying what these men taught. They had their academies and portraits corresponding to our modern universities. And they were interested in these great problems. What's philosophy? Well, it's a study of life, how to live. How to live happily and harmoniously. The nature of man and the nature of life and world and all. These great problems. The Greeks were tremendously interested in this. And whenever there was an address on this kind of thing or a discussion, there they would crowd. They lived on this. And of course a subsection of philosophy was politics. Politics is not something new, you know. The great philosophers, they were concerned about how to live. And they drew up their plans for what what they called utopia. And they talked about the ideal state and the ideal city. And they worked it out in detail, how various avocations were to be divided up and men were to work in these various spheres and all was going to be happy. Politics, they, they have a great deal to say about that. And they're still regarded as authorities on this subject. Where does the word democracy come from? Well it comes from them. They, they invented this word. All these great theories about how we are to live and how we are to be governed and so on. They were tremendously interested in all this. And another great interest of course was culture in general. They had great poets, they had great dramatists, and these works are still being studied and still being considered, and they were very interested in it all. Then, of course, they were very interested in art, particularly in architecture and in sculpture. And you can still go and look at the ruins of the great buildings that they put up, and we in this country uh, possess some of the great examples of their sculpture. And on top of it all, they were interested in sport. They are the people who started the Olympic Games and the marathon races and so on. Well now, these were the topics that were of great interest to the people who lived in Corinth. But the apostle says, I determined, I decided not to preach about any of those things whatsoever. They would have liked him to do so. They wanted him to do so. They expected him to do so. At first they regarded him as a fool. Because he didn't do so. And he didn't do so quite deliberately. Now, why didn't he do so? And you see, this is what is so interesting. He tells us exactly why he didn't. It's in the sixth verse. Howbeit we speak wisdom, this is philosophy. Politics, all these things, education, the things I've been talking about. We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, nothing, a cipher, a blank. They come to nothing. That's why I didn't preach about them. And you know, this is not a matter of theory. This is a sheer fact. And this is what's so important for us to grasp at a time such as this. All these things had already failed before the Son of God ever came into this world. Before Paul ever began to preach. They'd all been tried with great thoroughness, but they'd all failed Take this desire amongst the Jews that he should have preached the law. What's the answer to that? Well, the the apostle gives the answer to that in the third chapter of the epistle to the Romans, verse 20. By the deeds of the law shall no man be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, and it doesn't go any further. It proves to us that we are sinners, but it can't save us. Remember how he puts it again in the third verse of the eighth chapter of his epistle to the Romans what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh god sending his own son etc the law couldn't do it the law was a failure the apostle argues about this in many places in his epistles men and women could not keep the law what's the point of preaching the law then it comes to naught It leaves us helpless under condemnation, and though we may be greatly interested in this point of view and that, and argue and debate, if we are failures, moral failures and sinners, and the law can't help us, what's the point of preaching the law? Well that's the answer to that. And of course it was exactly the same with regard to this great philosophy, this speculation as to man and his nature, life, death, and so on. This drawing up of the plans for utopia. What did it all come to? Well, you know, we know the answer, don't we? The apostle himself gives us the answer in many places, and this is why he didn't preach philosophy and politics and all these various other matters. Uh, The most terrifying answer is in a sense that which is given in the first chapter of his epistle to the Romans, where he gives us an account of life in that ancient world. It's this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves. God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change their natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. that was the way in which they were living the great land of philosophy the great land of learning and of roman law and this is how he winds up his description of them being filled with all unrighteousness fornication wickedness covetousness maliciousness full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable unmerciful. who, knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. With all the learning and the greatest philosophers that already come and gone and have been dead two or three centuries, in spite of all this, that was the state of society. That was the state of men and women speaking generally in this great city of Corinth. So that's why the apostle decided that he wasn't going to preach these things. They've come to naught. They don't achieve anything. So why waste your breath in preaching things that are ultimately valueless and useless? Ah, yes, says someone, but that's the first century. And we are living in the 20th century. And we've split the atom and can land people on the moon. And we are now prospecting the surface of Mars. And look at the great learning and science and tremendous advances especially of the last hundred years, is what you're saying true? Are you telling us that we are to be fools? Are you saying that the Christian church today is not to know anything of these things amongst the people, that this is not what they need? Well, that is precisely what I am saying. And I am saying that the modern world is proving the dictum of the apostle. All these things have come to naught. And the state of the world tonight is proving it. That's why it's in such terrible trouble. Because we, you see, have gone in for the same things. People have turned from religion during the last hundred years, what have they turned to? Philosophy, science, politics. These are the things, education, these are the things that were going to make a perfect world. Now you needn't take my word for this. I'm going to read to you a number of quotations from great names in the realm of thought for you to see what they say. You needn't take the word of a little preacher, a fool in a Christian pulpit. Listen to these men. Take the great man Tolstoy, the great novelist Count Tolstoy. This is what he said amongst other things. The meaningless absurdity of life is the only incontestable knowledge accessible to man. The meaningless absurdity of life. And here's a man who spent a lifetime considering these problems, trying to understand, trying to find a way out. That's his conclusion. Another, let me quote you another. Last year was the centenary... Of the birth of a man who was very well known, especially until, say, the beginning of the last war. You've all heard of the WEA, Workers' Educational Association. Now, the man who started that was a, a man whose name was Albert Mansbridge, and there have been references to him during the last year because he was the man who conceived this idea that the working classes were living in squalor and unhappy and slaves of drink and all that characterized what General William Booth described as darkest England. He said the sole cause of this is ignorance. He said the only thing to do is to take knowledge and information the working classes. So he started these classes amongst the, the, the working people, the Workers' Educational Association. And you know, in 1903, when this W.E.A. was really inaugurated, Albert Mansbridge said, if only the working classes can be educated, the solution to all the problems is bound to follow. Education, he said, leads to emancipation. Emancipation is really education. He was quite convinced, and many with him. I'm not detracting from the work that he did. But this is this was the idea that if only you educated people, give them knowledge, the problems would be solved. Or take another one, Mr. Morris Ginsburg. Writing on the idea of progress in Essays in Sociology and Social Philosophy in 1968, he puts it like this Modern psychological theories expose the naivety of the assumption which earlier theories had taken for granted that intellectual advance will be necessarily reflected in improved human relationships. That was the idea. He said it was naïve, but people did believe it, that intellectual advance, education, knowledge, culture, would necessarily, of necessity, be reflected in improved human relationships. That's what our Victorian grandfathers really believed. They were quite confident of it. Take another, Professor Arnold Toynbee, now here is one of the great historians of all times. You remember he wrote a massive history of the world, at first in ten volumes, eventually some twelve volumes. He wasn't a Christian, but he had studied human history, was trying to understand life with the ultimate objective, of course, of discovering what we had to do in order to make life happy and successful in this world. Now in his very last book, which had the title, Mankind and Mother Earth, and was only published last year, this is what he says. There is a morality gap in the development of mankind. Man constantly extends his physical power over the environment, but he is unable to improve his social arrangements correspondingly, still less to subdue his destructive passions. Technology is the only field of human activity in which there has been progress, progression. Now that's Arnold Tynbee. he wasn't a Christian. But he's got to face facts, and there are the facts, staring us in the face. Take the men who really founded Czechoslovakia after the end of the First World War, that great patriot, Thomas Masaryk. He was not only a great patriot and politician, but a great philosopher, and yet he said this, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it all the philosophers can do he says is to interpret the world in various ways but what the world needs is to be changed and they can't do it says a philosopher thomas masurick and finally aldous huxley a novelist a thinker a very able man coming from that brilliant family of the huxley's this man started his life by believing in science. He ended his life by being a Buddhist. But this is what he, what you can read about him in the biography published recently. At the end of his life, having given the whole of his life to teaching us how to live, brave new world and so on and so forth. This is what he said at the end of his life. It is a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all one's life. And that at the end, one has no more to offer by way of advice than try to be a little kinder. Need I say any more about this? Paul says, I haven't preached these things, why? It comes to naught. It comes to nothing. And the same thing is as true tonight. For a century we've trusted to philosophy, to science, to education, culture, knowledge and all our busted advance. Of course, as these men say, there has been brilliant technological advance. but look at your world. Look at the chaos of the world tonight. Look at human relationships. Look at the drug addiction. Look at the terrible squalor. The world has never been in greater trouble. My dear friends, that's why we don't preach these things. Well there are people telling us that the church ought to turn to politics and to social affairs. And they're giving their pompous opinions in their world congresses, as the world governments and others should do. And we are told that we should be participating in what the people are interested in. No, no. I determined, and that's why he determined, and we must determine. All these things, with all the good that is in some of them, eventually come to naught. They don't enable you out to live, to resist temptation. They can't give you happiness, peace, joy. They leave you bereft, and on your deathbed you've got nothing. They come, says Paul, to naught, to nothing, emptiness, vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Very well. That's why he determined not to know anything among them. But let me not end on a negative. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he preached. And this is only what he preached. Nothing else. And this is our only message tonight to this world. I'm not competent to tell the new president of the United States what he ought to do. Some of these ecclesiastics seem to think they can. What do they know? How can there be authorities on all these subjects? They cannot. They're wasting their time, wasting their breath, wasting their money. What does the world need? It needs to be told about Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is my message, says Paul. Well, why did he determine only to preach this? Here are some answers. Work them out for yourselves. The first is, of course, that this is what he was commanded to preach. His man never decided to be a preacher. He was appointed, met the Lord of glory on the road to Damascus, who said, you're going to be a minister and a witness. He gave him a commission. And he told him what to preach. The Apostle Paul was not a philosopher as such. His message was not something he'd worked out. It was the message that was given to him. He talks about the deposit. He talks about this faith. That which I have received, he keeps on saying. This is the first reason, therefore, why he decided not to do anything else. He was an honest man. And as he was commanded and given a commission, he called himself, you remember, an ambassador. What's the business of an ambassador? Well, it's not to voice his own opinions. It's to represent his government. It's to say what he's told to say. He may have many ideas, that's not his business. He's not to give his private opinions. He's the representative of his country. Paul says, I am an ambassador for Christ. So he's simply carrying out the mandate that was given to him, and this should be true of every preacher, Ye servants of God, your master proclaim and publish abroad his wonderful name. But let me go on, he gives us some marvelous reasons here, and you know I can't understand how any man who claims to be called to preach can preach on any of these other themes that People have got their itching ears. I'm told I should be preaching about modern art and showing the superiority of Christian art to modern art and drama and novels. Ah, my dear friends, people who talk like that, they don't know these great and glorious things that the apostle speaks about here. Why did he only preach this message? Well, he tells us. This is the testimony of God. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, God's message. Or he puts it again in another way in, in these words, in verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And here, you see, is a new realm altogether. This is why I don't preach philosophy or politics or sociology. It's the message of God. The world is upside down, the world's in trouble. All the experts, philosophers, scientists, educationalists, economists, they're all arguing with one another. You can't get two of them to agree as to what's needed and what can be done. Nevertheless, with the world been so busy in trying to solve its problems and to put itself in order, and it's all leading to naught, to nothing, to absolute failure. What's the greatest need of the world tonight? To know God's plan. God's plan. And this was Paul's message. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the foundation of the world now, this is the message of the church, God's message. And as I say, isn't this our greatest need? Men are failing. The world is in utter darkness. What's the need? Oh, to listen to God's view of it all, what God thinks of it all, God's message, God's remedy for it all. And it's all here in the Bible. You see, the Bible tells us plainly that the world is as it is because it's turned its back upon God. That's the whole trouble. Man was put in paradise. It was perfect. A life of unmixed bliss. How has life become what it is? Because man rebelled against God because he sinned. The way of the transgressor is hard. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. This is what God says. It isn't an economic problem or a political problem. It's a moral, it's a religious problem. Man estranged from God. Man under the wrath of God. I've already quoted from Romans 1, and there it is. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For because the wrath of God from him has already been revealed upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hold down the truth in unrighteousness. This is what God says. Are you aware of this, my friend? Isn't this what the world needs to know? Am I to be wasting my time in giving my political and social opinions when I'm telling you that God says there's only one source of all our troubles? It is our alienation from him. It is our sinfulness and the wrath of God is upon this modern world. Quite plainly to be seen as God had abandoned those ancient civilizations the terrible things that i read to you from romans 1. he's doing it again what i read there might very well be a description of london tonight all the horrible perversions and everything else it's the same thing once more it's the wrath of god upon men as a rebel and men in sin but thank god it's not only diagnosis it's the only diagnosis it's the only truth about the world tonight That's why you get industrial strife and all these things. Selfishness, greed, the things Paul enumerated. You can't trust anybody. Everybody out for himself. That's man in sin. That's the problem. And it's no use to philosophize about this. Something's got to be done about it. Well, says Paul, God has done something about it. God has ordained a plan for the salvation of the world even before he'd created the world what is it well here he puts it in these words jesus christ and him crucified if paul had no other reason for not preaching the other things this would be enough the person jesus christ this is what god has done All loving wisdom of our God when all was sin and shame. The second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. Is the world hopeless? Are we all hopeless? Of course not. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the great message concerning Jesus of Nazareth. The babe that was born in a stable in Bethlehem. Who was he? He's the eternal Son of God, the great message of the Incarnation. This is God's love for the world, God's concern for the world. He'd given the law, they couldn't keep it. The philosophers had come and taught, they couldn't change anybody or anything. But God has intervened. When the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. And this is the thing, you see, that thrilled the life of this apostle. He'd been an opponent of Jesus Christ. He'd been a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. He tried to destroy the church. Here he is as the apostle and the preacher. Why? Well, he met him on the road to Damascus. There he is traveling, and suddenly he sees that light. And he sees the face, and he fell helpless to the ground. And he heard a voice saying, Paul, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And looking back at this amazing face, he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the answer came back, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And he never got over it. The despised Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God. He calls him here, as you notice, the Lord of glory. None of the princes of this world knew him. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. My dear friends, this is the only hope tonight. And that's why this is the only message. God has sent his only son into the world. It's a great mystery. It's a marvel. It's a miracle. The perfect son of God laid aside the signs of his eternal glory. And was born of a woman. Born of a virgin. Born in a stable in abject poverty. Lived amongst men. Worked with his hands, worked miracles, gave his incomparable teaching. That conquest over the elements conquered all his enemies, the devil included. Jesus Christ, but then particularly, and him crucified. This thing that was a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Greeks' foolishness. But I preach it, says Paul. Why? Because it's essential. It's the only way we can be saved. The teaching of Christ doesn't save us. It becomes a philosophy if you stop at the teaching. And it's more impossible than any other teaching. It's all very well to talk about imitating Christ. Have you ever tried it? You can't do it. You can't come up to your own standard. How can you imitate Christ? He damns us, every one of us. He was without sin. He was perfect. No, no. He doesn't save us by his teaching. He doesn't save us even by his perfect life. These are parts of it. But the crucial act is what happened on the cross on Calvary's hill. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Well, because, says Paul, that is the power of God and the wisdom of God in this way. Our great need, you see, is to be reconciled to God. How can it happen? How can a man be just with God? He can't. Do what he will, He can't. How can I get rid of my sin? It's my sin that comes between me and God. God regardeth not sinners and he doesn't listen to them. I've got to get rid of this sin. I can't do it. There's only one way to get rid of sin. It's God's way. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. God hath made him As Paul says in the second epistle, chapter 5, God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My dear friends, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the most amazing thing that has ever happened in this world. You ask me to preach about politics and sociology? I can't. I've got something so glorious to set before you. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. And poor contempt on all my pride. Where the whole realm of nature mine. that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Christ. He damns us, every one of us. He was without sin. He was perfect. No, no. He doesn't save us by his teaching. He doesn't save us even by his perfect life. These are parts of it. But the crucial act is what happened on the cross on Calvary's hill. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Well, because, says Paul, that is the power of God and the wisdom of God in this way. Our great need, you see, is to be reconciled to God. How can it happen? How can a man be just with God? He can't. Do what he will, he can't. How can I get rid of my sin? It's my sin that comes between me and God. God regardeth not sinners, and he doesn't listen to them. I've got to get rid of this sin, I can't do it. There's only one way to get rid of sin. It's God's way. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. God hath made him, as Paul says in the second epistle, chapter five, God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My dear friends, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the most amazing thing that has ever happened in this world. You ask me to preach about politics and sociology? I can't. I've got something so glorious to set before you. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all preach about these other things it's impossible the most astounding thing that's ever happened the author of life dying the sinless one bearing the punishment of sin that's god's wisdom that's god's power that's god's way of salvation that's why he determined not to know anything else. And finally, the last reason is this. Because of what all this does for us. Look at verse 9. As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. A world in trouble. I've got to tell you, says Paul, about what God has prepared for you. The results of this action of his in sending his own son not only into the world, but even to the death of the cross on Calvary's hill, this works. It does something, it succeeds, it's prepared things for us that nothing else can give us. What are these things that God has prepared for us? Well they're wonderful. The first is forgiveness. You lose your sense of guilt. You lose your sense of the fear of death and the grave. We've all got to die, my friends. And politics can't help you to die, nor philosophy, nor any one of these things. These are the ultimate problems. But here is a way of forgiveness. Reconciled to God. The wrath of God has been satisfied, he's poured it on his son, who's born our punishment in his own body on the cross. So we are forgiven. Without doing anything, without money, without price, just as you are, without one plea. This is it. What a message. The things that God hath prepared for them that love him. Forgiveness. Peace with God reconciliation with God, knowing that God is my Father, able to go to Him in prayer with confidence and assurance, by whom we have access into this faith wherein we stand, says Paul. When all things seem against me to drive me to despair, and it may be coming, if there's industrial and economic collapse, despair. But when all things seem against me to drive me to despair, I know one gate is open, one ear will hear my prayer. Access to God in prayer and assurance that he's ready to receive me, not only that new life. Joy, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. All that is possible in this life and in this world. Though hell may be raging round and about us, There is a peace of God that passeth all understanding available to us in spite of hell itself. These are some of the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But not only that, it not only offers these things to us, new life, a new outlook upon everything, and above all, a new hope. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. The glory begins here, but it doesn't end here. The Christian can smile in the face of death. He knows that there's a glorious future. It doesn't depend upon politics and men. We see what they come to. It comes to naught. But you know, I don't know how people can live in a time like this without believing this, there's a day coming when God is going to send his only Son back again into this world, not as the babe of Bethlehem this time, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, riding the clouds of heaven, conquering and to conquer, he'll come and he'll judge the whole world in righteousness. And all who opposed him and hated him will be cast to eternal perdition. And then he'll renovate the whole universe. And you and I who believe in him will be changed even in our very bodies and be like unto him. And spend our eternity with him in the glory everlasting. That's the message. That's what it means by Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you see, this is not theory. This works. This does happen. This is the great story of the Christian church. Why does Paul say, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified? The answer is this. Because of what it had done to him himself. There he is, Saul of Tarsus, very learned, very able, better than anybody else, self-righteous, proud Pharisee great mound of righteousness. But when he met this Lord, it all became dung and loss and refuse. He became a new man. For the first time in his life, he knew real peace, he knew real joy, and he thrilled at every recollection of it. He's a new man. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation. It had revolutionized his life and made a new man and a very happy man of him. A man who lived a glorious life and who could look forward to a triumphant death and entering into the glory everlasting. But it not only worked in the case of Paul. The apostle reminds these Corinthians, how it had worked amongst them. Listen to this. In chapter 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such... Where some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Learning and sculpture and all the glory of Rome and of Greece together could not do for these people living in the darkland area of Corinth. Jesus Christ had done. They'd been lifted up, they'd been born again, and they were saints, and he addresses them as the saints who are at Corinth. And it's been doing the same ever since. I could keep you to midnight, telling you about the wonders of redeeming grace. A man like Augustine, brilliant philosopher, living with his mistress, a complete failure, entirely delivered. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, all these mighty men throughout the ages and the centuries, the glorious company of apostles, the martyrs, these giants who lived in this world, they all attribute it to Jesus Christ. And thank God.
2: We can still say the same thing today. When everything else is failing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified can still succeed, is still succeeding. There is power, power, mighty working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. That's why our business is to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and nothing else. This is the only thing that can help the individual. This is the only thing that can help society and the world. Do you know it, my friend? Is this your one theme? The biggest thing in your life do you rejoice in it and are you telling men and women what their real need is and the only answer to that need and the only solution to our every problem Jesus Christ if we but knew him and saw the glory of his death on the cross God forbid says Paul that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Can you say that? That is true Christianity.